Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. It is summer in Brooklyn. It is hot. People are outside, and it is one of the best times to explore some of Brooklyn's most lovely and interesting neighborhoods. And in this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we're going to explore one such neighborhood, Fort Greene. Colored School Number 1 was established in Fort Greene, and this was a school for black children. And the people who worked at this school were just amazing individuals yeah absolutely a number of people who were the really the leaders of the black community in mid-century this was i mean you know again this is what was so surprising to me in learning about this that that fort green was always a center a center of black middle class life right and it endures what do we we make of this julie what what kind of crazy document did you just pull from the archives today well um besides pulling it for its giggle factor (laughs) um i pulled something that i think really truly represents a moment of cultural importance in the history of the ubiquitous Brooklyn Brownstone. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's what I think we should dig into yeah, in this segment yeah. a little bit because um, while there's many, many debates about housing and the nature of housing development in Fort Greene today, nothing is quite as iconic as those rows of brownstone streets um, in, in Fort Greene. Uh, what we developed was a model that you uh, provided access to low interest loans, co-ownership between the lender and the low income family for a period of time, and that the institutions, Brooklyn Hospital, Pratt, LIU, St. Joseph's, would all uh, guarantee that they would rent apartments for either their students or their faculty from those homeowners. So, you know, Julie, um, they, are, they ha- always have these housing lotteries for affordable housing, and I'm always signing up for them because you just never know when you'll get lucky. And um, I, I did kind of get lucky because I did get selected to I come remember look this. at an apartment. Yes. And uh, I was all excited. But it was it was a crazy, like, still crazy expensive for a studio. But I did go look at the building. And it was on Ashland Place in Fort Greene. And it it was absolutely stunning building, but something that just seemed to just come up overnight. And it got me to thinking about Fort Greene and all of the changes this neighborhood has seen. And so I wondered if we could just kind of go back and think about what was this neighborhood when it first started? Yeah, I mean, today Fort Greene is one of the most coveted neighborhoods in Brooklyn, um, which is a completely sort of different way of looking at one place than you would have in the 1970s or 80s, but also even in the 1870s or 80s, or if I can, the 1670s and 80s. Like so many places in Brooklyn, 
so many aspects have changed over time. The built environment, the people who live there, access to that place, um, why and how we use it and we call it home. And that's what we're going to dig into today. Most of our common sense or commonplace knowledge of these neighborhoods' as histories tend to extend only as far back as the people we know or, or the generation before. And so it's kind of fuzzy what Fort Greene was like maybe 40 years ago or 50 years ago. But Julie, there's a long history for this place, right? So I love that feeling when you get off the C train or you get off the G train right there on Fulton. You look around, you see so many different landscapes at once. You see the high rises of downtown Brooklyn in the background. You see the Beaux-Arts BAM building. You see rows and rows of brownstones in another direction. And you really, people are all around. It's crowded and you really feel like you're at the center of it all. But if we go back in time, Fort Greene is not the center of it all. It's the periphery. Mm. In a lot of ways, Fort Greene was like a frontier in the early days of Brooklyn, in the days of Brooklyn, in the 17th and 18th century. So who lived here in this frontier? Not that many people, I'll tell you. Well, so we talked um, on our last episode about this, the family, the Rapelli family, who mm-hmm. bought up the land that eventually became our new home in, in Dumbo. But the Rapelli land extended all the way over to the Wallabout Bay area, um, in the northern part of Fort Greene. So one of the first landowners actually owned a massive swath of land um, along the coastline there. And of course, the Rapelli family, like so many of the early Dutch families, would have been purchasing this land in sometimes shady land deals. Right. Let's just say purchased with air yes, quotes. Yes, big, big air quotes, right? <laughs> um, from the Native Americans, from mm-hmm. the Lenape, who lived and fished along the coastline and lived nomadically throughout Kings County for several hundred years before this. But I actually think the Rapellis are the less interesting person, and this may be based on my own particular background. But Fort Greene may be the home of the first, uh, the first Brooklynite of Italian descent. Really? Yeah, like not your 1940s Joe Pesci Italian, <laughs> a different kind of Italian. Um, this is a guy named Pietro Cesar Alberti, who was an Italian crew member on a Dutch boat. This was common. New York um, in the 17th century was a very cosmopolitan place. People of many different ethnicities working for different countries, um, um, basically in maritime culture. But he stayed. Alberti decided to stay here, and he actually went across the river to the frontier land that was Broekland, eventually purchasing um, what what became a 100-acre tobacco farm in the land that is Fort Greene today. His family owned land here, a significant swath of land, um, until the early 18th century. And the the area didn't change much during that time. Brooklyn at that time was sleepy, very sparsely settled, largely agricultural. So this tobacco farm made a lot of sense, although it wasn't the best climate for tobacco. It was actually a lot better climate for the foodstuffs that were feeding that much larger city across mm-hmm. the river. So how did this neighborhood change from this kind of frontier farmland to a growing place of settlement. It takes a while. We really don't see that change until the beginning of the 19th century. Really, and I'll pinpoint one year, 1814. You've all heard me talk about 1814 before because that is the year that the Fulton Ferry launched connecting Brooklyn and Manhattan in a way that had heretofore been impossible and creating transportation options that allowed Brooklyn to become a place of residence that still had access to the city across the river. 
I think it's really important for us to always be mindful of how transportation, access to places of employment, access to places where people can get goods and services really factors into where people can live. I mean, despite the subway being awful these days. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so important. We take that for granted, right? The connections, the the, the, the ease to be able to get someplace. Or even if one train is shut down, you can take the the other one, right? That's even more reason why people are so upset about the subways is because they're so, we are so dependent. And we consider it a right. Yeah, yeah. Right? But, I mean, to get to Fort Greene before the the establishment of the Fulton Ferry might have been a day long affair. Ferries before the establishment of the Fulton Ferry were uh, slow. Um, They were dependent on the weather. If the weather was bad, it was dangerous. It could take you an hour to get across. And then by the time you got here, you still had to get out to Fort Greene, um, which would require walking or a horse. And it's really only after the ferry takes off that a stagecoach line mm. basically is established leaving from Fulton Ferry to bring people the about two miles down the road to get to that area. So another transportation innovation made possible by initial transportation right. innovation right. that allows Fort Greene to become a place that is much more settled. And one other thing I think really counts here, which is that by the time we get into the 1830s and 40s, you start to see more industry along the waterfront. So you are not only living in Brooklyn, you are working in Brooklyn. And one of the most important things here is, of course, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which sits just north of the neighborhood of Fort Greene. Um, so Fort Greene became a working class neighborhood, home to hundreds of workers that were heading to the Navy Yard each day. So we see a much more diverse group of people moving in and living in in Fort Greene. Yeah, so a lot of working class people living in there. And of course, this reflects the demographic changes of Brooklyn at the time. After the 1830s, more and more Irish people living um, often in very subpar housing along Myrtle Avenue, Um, but also middle class workers and a growing group of skilled black workers who were working at the Navy Yard and other places along the waterfront. And you know, this that particular history is what really surprised me when I started learning more about Fort Greene's history was the very early presence of African-Americans living in the neighborhood. And I think the the history of certainly central Brooklyn and its black uh, communities, a lot of people just think of like the 1950s and 60s when really, you know, like Bed-Stuy and its kind of surrounding areas become this heart of black Brooklyn and black New York, really. But when you go back to the early 1800s, um, and in and, and the mid 1800s, you get this this very significant, um, as you said, middle class black community around organizers around abolitionism, but also around education. That's right. Right. So civil, basically civil rights activists yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways. And, you know, just like going through some of this in 1827, Colored School Number One was established in Fort Greene. And this was a school for black children. And the people who worked at this school were just amazing individuals. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, We read the letter of one of these people on an episode a while back on William Julius Wilson, who also wrote under the pseudonym Ethiope for Frederick uh Douglass's paper. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, who eventually became the first black woman doctor in all of New York State at the time. She lived in Weeksville. She worked closely with the school. George Hogarth, a number of people who were the really the leaders of the black community in mid-century. Charles Dorsey, 
um, Oberlin educated from Philly became one of its principals. I mean, this, <laughs> this was, I mean, it, you know, again, this is what was so surprising to me in learning about this, that the Fort Greene was always a center of a black center of class, black middle class yeah. life. Right. And it endures. I mean, I think this is the important thing. You know, Charles Dorsey, who you mentioned, principal of that school for something like 35 years. I mean, um, in the late 19th century, that the school was hosting visitors like yeah. Booker T. Washington. Yeah, he served from 1863 to 1897. It's amazing. Ba- almost the last half of that century, he was this principal of this school. Um, so you can kind of, you can only imagine. Um, how critical this institution was and how critical the, the people who worked at this institution was uh, to defining what Fort Greene was like. One of the things is that, that Fort Greene had, has this unique history of being a home to so many different communities, so many different ethnicities, different classes of mm-hmm. people, um, that it, it kind of maintains that character into the 20th century. Yes, definitely. And and by the 20th century, it also takes on, I think, a new character, which is that it becomes home to a, a number of artists who are inspired by this sort of beautiful 19th century streetscapes that, that mark the neighborhood. I mean, my favorite, and I think you might agree with me, is, of course, Richard Wright, mm, who lived mm-hmm. there in mid-century who would sit in Fort Greene Park uh, with his yellow legal pad and scrawl the notes for what would eventually become the book Native Son. Wow, imagine that. And here's a little scavenger hunt for our listeners. If you go to Fort Greene Park, see if you can find the bench in the space that is covered in Richard Wright quotes. Wow. You choose it here. See yeah, if you go I there and you can there. find I, it. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> and I've been so many times to Fort Greene Park, and I, I haven't really thought to look. It's a lovely for secret. this bench. I just I just oftentimes just sit on any old bench, imagining I'm and Richard pretending Wright. You're <laughs> Wright. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's good enough for old Richard Wright, it's that good works. enough for me. It but works. I I will go look for his his bench because I think that's important. And and is you know there is this way that being in a place with this kind of history. You do feel kind of transported back. Absolutely. Yeah. By by the mid twentieth century, Fort Greene faced some of the same challenges that a lot of neighborhoods faced, not just in Brooklyn but throughout New York. Deindustrialization mm-hmm. is eliminating so many jobs. Um, containerization eliminating dock worker jobs. The Brooklyn Navy Yard, right around the corner, that place where so many. Fort Greene residents worked for generation after generation closes mm-hmm. in. Uh, 1966, eliminating several thousand jobs there. So it's a neighborhood that's really hitting hard times. Yeah, and then you had a lot of people converting their homes into SROs or single-room occupancies Mm -hmm. in order to get renters to meet rising housing costs and living living costs. You have many white residents of Fort Greene being able to take advantage of the benefits of the GI Bill that offered low-interest loans that allowed them to move out into the suburbs, where housing was cheaper because of prefabricated housing techniques, right? But for many Black residents, these opportunities were not available. And so um, you have increased racial segregation as a result of federal 
housing policy as a result of banking practices that redlined or rated certain districts or certain areas as high risk for for loans, making it difficult for people to live in certain areas versus other areas, uh, and then certainly real estate practices. And so Fort Greene, as a result, really suffers the fate of many um, urban neighborhoods uh, in central Brooklyn. But even as this is all happening, there are other movements taking place. There's other changes. Um, The Landmarks Movement, for Mm -hmm. example, begins Mm -hmm. to target brownstone neighborhoods like Brooklyn Heights, um, Borham Hill, and then, of course, Fort Greene. And so Fort Greene gets landmark status in 1978 at the height of this kind of nadir that you're describing, right? right? right. Um, But this is a moment where, in retrospect, we can begin to see things kind of turning around a little bit. And we also see the rise of a community of people very much inspired by the new left, progressive politics, um, a back-to-the-city movement, Jane Jacobites, right, Mm -hmm. who um, often called themselves brownstoners, who became very invested in not moving out to the suburbs the way that that sort of community that you described here did, but to staying in the city and to revitalizing what they saw as these kind of authentic 19th century neighborhoods. And Fort Greene was one of the places where you see people coming in, buying brownstones very inexpensively, doing all kinds of historical research on them, um, and it with a goal to bring their houses and their neighborhoods um, back to their prime. And all of this um, with incredibly good intentions, but very far-reaching economic consequences for the neighborhood. One of the groups that came in as part of that wave, uh, we could almost say was a return yes. of, of, a, of a black middle class, especially of black artists. And certainly in the early 80s, probably one of the most notable uh, was Spike Lee. And I don't think we can talk about modern Fort Greene's history yeah. without Spike Lee and the role that he played in attracting um, a whole group of artists relating to uh, film, music, journalism. It was almost like, you know, people who wrote about film or who wanted to live in Fort Greene because of Spike Lee yeah. was there. And he wasn't, he didn't just live there. He opened his production company, Absolutely. 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks, in Fort Greene at a time when it's unclear where this is going to go. Like, even though you have these efforts of these brownstoners and other uh, efforts to revitalize the neighborhood, it was not inevitable what Fort Greene was going to become. And But even with that open-ended question, you had people answering it with their own presence. And I think people like Spike Lee and Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis and um, Larry, Larry Fishburne, Fishburne and Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes. And, you know, they brought a whole wave of artists and creative people attracting and giving a kind of cultural cachet to the neighborhood in the early mid 80s. And then in the 90s, you had like a second a new wave, wave, a yeah. new wave, people like Erica Badu and Most Def and, and others. And so like there's a whole kind of hip hop and slam poetry circuit. And so, I mean, Fort Greene by the 90s is this really hip neighborhood that still, interestingly enough, reflects this this diversity is still there. It yeah. was still it's still this this really diverse neighborhood in really interesting ways. You know, it's funny. I love that we're doing this episode talking about Fort Greene after we just did an episode about Dumbo because I think the comparison of mm, the two mm-hmm. show you so saliently how com- 
how gentrification plays out in such different ways in different places based on a neighborhood's built environment, its position. Um, it's, you know, near the waterfront or far from right, the waterfront, right, the right. people who lived there, right. it's history. I mean, the, these are two neighborhoods that you would come to Brooklyn today and be like, these are markers of gentrification. Yes. But the nature of that pattern is so wholly different right, in both of right. them. And that isn't to say that one is a more or less triumphant yes, story than another, right? right? Because right. I mean, or gentr- heartbreaking, right? Right. Because right. yeah. I mean, gentrification <laughs> is still gentrification. It is a kind of zero sum game. I mean, there are people who lose out, who are who are no longer able to afford yeah. to live in Fort Greene. As much as you know, if you talk to people who've lived in Fort Greene for a long time, they are really committed to this ideal and idea that the history of Fort Greene has conveyed in terms of diversity. And, and not just racial and ethnic diversity, but class diversity. And that's something that even the Brownstoners are really committed to when they were trying to revitalize Absolutely. the neighborhood. But that has been really hard to sustain in the last five to 10 years. I mean, I think one of the major things that is lost in rapid gentrification is not just the institutions, the housing, the people who live there, but the very fabric of the history of the place. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In this segment of Into the Archives, we have pulled one very interesting, very strange document. Yeah, I I think... um... And I should also say... (laughs) I'm already laughing, but uh, (laughs) because uh, this looks like historical cosplay going on. It's very Mr. Roper. It's so this we're giggling because nothing has ever felt so of the 1970s as the document that we're looking at. It's basically a folded up kind of folded up handout almost like a like a brochure Mm -hmm. right yes and on one side we see this portrait this 19th century portrait of a family seemingly upper middle class family yes well dressed Um, big long skirts lots of kids yes very uh well appointed um posed and then next to it is the image of a family in um full bell bottom <laughs> turtlenecks and bell bottoms <laughs> polyester in play um, um reenacting um yeah. the older photograph and I, I, would you say they're about 100 years apart I, they really do look maybe 100 150 years yeah. apart and i mean down to the pose there's like a young child in yeah. the painting pointing in one direction and then this 19 charming 1970s bell bottom clad child pointing in the same direction they're really truly embodying right. the notion of this 19th century family in the pose that they're taking. Yes. So what the heck are we Yeah, what are do we, we make of this, at? Julie? What what kind of crazy document did you just pull from the archives today? Well, um, besides pulling it for its giggle factor, <laughs> um, I pulled something that I think really truly represents a moment of cultural importance in the history of the ubiquitous Brooklyn Brownstone. Mm. And that's what I think we should dig into in this segment a little bit, because um, while there's many, many debates about housing and the nature of housing development in Fort Greene today, nothing is quite as iconic as those rows of brownstone streets um, in in Fort Greene. 
So this says Restoration Drama, May 6, 1973, uh, 1.30 to 4.30. So it's basically advertising an event. Yes. And the event is the 14th annual Park Slope Civic Council House Tour. Um, so, you know, let's just this is Park Slope. But these these house tours, what what is the story about these house tours? And this this house tour is the 14th annual one happening in 1973. So this is at least this was going on throughout the 1960s. So why would a house tour or what would a house an advertisement for a house tour in Park Slope tell us about the story of housing in Fort Greene. Yeah, like, do you have house tours? Do you open your doors every year? <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> I don't. But these people, these folks did. This is one of many house tours in a collection um, that I actually really love. Um, that is the H. Dixon McKenna collection. It's one of a handful of collections that I think really captures the brownstoning movement in the late, the, the, the mid and late 20th century. So this is filled with a bunch of different brochures, including many Fort Greenhouse tours as well, advertising these moments where once a year or twice a year, a neighborhood would get together, they would open their doors, and they would welcome people to come into their beautifully revitalized brownstones. Now, what has happened in the past 20 years before this to allow for this moment mm -hmm, to happen? Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about this in segment one, right. right? People really drawn by what they see as these sort of beautiful, evocative, and they often use the word authentic yes, 19th yes, century yes. houses. And also seeing them and being sort of heartbroken by their disrepair are able to buy them at relatively inexpensive prices and commit an enormous amount of their time, their community spirit, and their energy to revitalizing the houses and restoring them to what they saw as their original splendor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that's really interesting that something that in the 20th century um, signifies a kind of authenticity actually throws us back to the 19th century uh, where these things had a very different kind of, of meaning. When we think about particularly the Fort, the Fort Green Row houses south of um, Fort Green Park mm -hmm. on streets like South Oxford and Cumberland, these houses are of a particular moment of development. And the mm -hmm. word development to the people who are moving in here in the 20th century might have sounded like a negative term, right? right? Um, right. It represented high rises. It represented a Robert Moses vision of the city that they were really trying to, to fight back right. against. Right. But in fact, these brownstones actually came out of a moment of a housing boom, growing populations, um, a growing, um, growing tastes in the kind of the styles of these houses, as well as a technological moment where you actually see the creation of molds and other things that allow for the mass production of the Italianate or the, um, you know, um, neoclassical um, um, different facades that these this brownstones would have This is kind of the Levittown of the 19th century. That's what I would call it. It's like yeah. they're, they're model houses of the 19th century, right? Um, and um, they're able to go up relatively quickly um, given new amenities. Some um, things like running water and toilets were very exciting things in the late 19th century and were able to draw in a wealthier community who were able to pay more for this housing and thus you see housing prices rise across the neighborhood does that sound familiar yes <laughs> i'm not talking about the 1990s right, right, i'm talking right. about you know so this is a cycle exactly so gentrification that kind of development the rises of rising of housing prices 
definitely has its origins here. But I think there's an irony to that because that's the very thing that many of the brownstoners in the 20th century were actually kind of pushing back against when they moved into this neighborhood and looked to sort of revitalize these houses. So when when these folks are kind of, let's say, rediscovering this history and wanting to recover this history, what what kinds of things did they do to these houses in the 20th century? Well, I think, you know, today there's a lot of debate about what people will do to the interiors of brownstones. And there's like kind of a derision towards people who preserve the 19th century facade of their house, but then, you know, like blow out the inside and make it all modern and, and like open concept. But brownstoners were really looking to come in and preserve a house to its original condition. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That kind of detail and accuracy was incredibly important to them. It still continues to influence the landmarks movement and the practices of landmarking today in New York City. And they would go to places like Brooklyn Historical Society and New York Historical Society and the Municipal Archives and do all kinds of research on the nature of their houses in order to preserve them back to what they saw as, again, this authentic, original state in the 19th century. And, the and doc- I guess that kind of explains why people would, would want to find um, portraits or images or photographs of the interior to see what they needed to replicate. Absolutely. Any kind of drawings, any kind of blueprints that they're able to find. And these definitely do exist. Um, But if we go back to the document that we started with, this restoration drama, this very dramatic house door brochure, um, they actually just write it down for us right in here, don't they? So one of the uh, pull quotes in this document that we're looking at describes Um, One of these blocks as the only street in New York which retains a semblance of the scale and character of the city's handsome mid-19th century avenues. And I think that gives us a sense of what these folks were aspiring to uh, in in the 1970s when they were, you know, opening up their homes to um, these tours. You know, they're they're housing tours that still happen today. Absolutely. Um, And I've actually gone on a few just because out of like nosiness Mm -hmm. but when you think of popular sites like brownstoner.com which has a regular column where people post their renovations and they they highlight the the quote-unquote renovation of the week or of the month or whatever um there is a there's a huge amount of interest in the kind of historical uh content of these as this calls it restoration drama but even this document also like reflects the, the struggles um, that mm-hmm, neighborhoods have gone mm-hmm, through. They mm-hmm. say, like other city blocks, this one has suffered its share of neglect over the years. But now is in the throes of a great renaissance. And I love this next sentence. Creative, committed people are adapting houses to suit their individual tastes and lifestyles. You may share in this renaissance as you visit the following homes. And then it lists a series of ways that these houses are again hearkening back to the 19th century. One of my favorites is the one that's listed that says a sculptor has single-handedly converted this two-story carriage house from a dingy parking garage into a spacious studio and exciting free-flowing living area enlivened by a large collection of American Indian baskets and pottery. There is a lot going on. Um, I I joked about this before when we were looking at the pictures of the people, but this really is like history 
cosplay for houses. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. And I like the love the adjectives they use. The owner's interesting collection of American country antiques and sparkling use of color effectively combined with a wealth of original detail to create an ambiance of unusual warmth oh and comfort. I think one of the things that maybe were, is so interesting about this is that even as um, I think a lot of a lot of what the early like pioneers of these communities were trying to do was kind of escape from this market oriented yeah. notion of yeah. housing to say um, like we want to go back to something that feels very different. Um, you can also hear the language of real estate in yes. this. Yes. Yes. One of the things that I think is important for people to remember is that today we've, we, 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 we've really bought into this. We fetishize brownstones. Brownstones go for, you know, five, six million dollars yes. in some neighborhoods yes. in yes. Brooklyn. But in the mid 20th century, you know, Moses called brownstones slums. You mm-hmm, know, he mm-hmm. thought there was no reason to keep these. There were major movements to just completely raise these neighborhoods and begin fresh. They were seen as sort of like rat infested subpar housing. And so it just shows how rapidly our mindset has changed um, from the perspective of a historian right. and the role of these folks in helping to shape that change. Yeah. And as cheesy and as Three's Company as they may look, they actually played an important role in kind of being, at least for a moment, for that moment, the keepers or conveyors of the sense of value. Even if the some of the... Um, American Indian pottery and baskets weren't always <laughs> like the most historically accurate, but this idea that um, that history has to be factored in to the lived environment and how we think about our lived environment should be, I would say, respectful of, of that history. We just looked at one document to think about the culture of brownstoners and brownstoning in neighborhoods like Fort Greene. But and we were a little lighthearted. We were. <laughs> we were. We were. Bell bottoms. We yes. love those bell bottoms. Yes. But that said, buying and renovating a brownstone in a neighborhood like Fort Greene in the mid and late 20th century was incredibly difficult. And to give us some insight into what that all entailed. We're going to listen to one brownstone owner who will talk us through the kinds of things that he had to do and then advocated for people to have access to in order to make it possible to own and develop, renovate his brownstone. And that is Ron Schiffman. Ron Schiffman was born in 1938 in Israel. His parents uh, and family eventually settled in the Bronx in New York City, where he grew up. He graduated from Pratt Institute School of Architecture and later at School of Urban Planning. And I guess Pratt becomes his kind of seat here. Um, For people who aren't familiar, Pratt is in, we would say, like Fort Greene, Clinton Hill is is where it's located. In 1964, he co-founded the Pratt Institute Center for Community and Environmental Development, now known as the Pratt Center for Community Development. In 65, he partnered with the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council and Senator Robert Kennedy as part of Kennedy's tour of Bed-Stuy that led to the founding of the Bed-Stuy Restoration Corporation. And you can hear more about that tour in our episode on uh, Black women political leaders. So go check our older episode. 
This uh, particular interview is from our collection called uh, Voices of Brooklyn Oral Histories. And you can get the full interview on our oral history portal at brooklynhistory.org forward slash oral history. His particular interview is in the section called Civic Leaders, or you can just do a search for Ron Schiffman and it'll pop right up. So with that, we're going to play the clip. We tried to put together for Fort Greene a home ownership program to deal with a lot of what we saw incipient vacant buildings and uh, low and moderate income home ownership. And instead of seeing large scale development, what we thought, uh, we actually developed a program for Fort Greene, which never took off, uh, which was based on, on this house, actually. Uh, we figured out. Uh, that in order to create stable home ownership, what you needed, uh, particularly in a brownstone, was, because uh, they were at that time inexpensive, uh, uh, that what you needed uh, was the ability to borrow money. Uh, and from that, uh, if you were able to rent an apartment, uh, you were uh, then able to have enough income. Uh, to sustain your building. So we created this uh, proposal for a small home ownership program in, uh, in Bedford-Stuyvesant and eventually in Fort Greene that was modeled on how I got this house. I borrowed money from my uncle, my father, and credit cards to buy this house, which was at that time less than $40,000. All right. Uh, I needed another twenty, thirty thousand 30000 to fix it up. I had background as an architect, so I knew how to fix up the house. Uh, so, uh, and I had a, an income, uh, and the first place we fixed up was the apartment below, which was the, uh, supplemented the income. So, if you, we felt that if you can provide technical assistance, uh, a guaranteed renter, uh, uh, and uh, if the uh, if I had enough of an income that if I had to keep the apartment vacant for a week or a month or two, I could survive. But if I were a low-income family, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we developed was a model that you uh, provided access to low-interest loans, co-ownership between the lender and the low-income family for a period of time, and that the institutions, Brooklyn Hospital, Pratt, LIU, St. Joseph's, would all uh, guarantee that they would rent apartments for either their students or their faculty from those homeowners. So you had a guaranteed rental. Uh, later on, we found government programs or worked with the feds on government programs that, in essence, guaranteed the rental, whether it was a, a Section 8 voucher or its predecessor, I believe it was a Section 21, something like that voucher, or uh, you provided a low-interest home loan, uh, you were able to begin to emulate what we did here. And that was basically what we tried to do. We set up programs that provided technical assistance for homeowners on how to renovate their buildings uh, and uh, assistance in packaging the loan and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. And worked through thing, groups initially like PAC and uh, Bed-Stuy Restoration and the St. Nicholas Neighborhood Housing Development Corporation and other places to deal with those kinds of issues. And that led us to the community reinvestment stuff that a number of years later was the way we tried to solve the problem. It was based on how do we 
you know, what did I learn in doing this building? Then how do we do it in, in Fort Greene? And then we started applying it with the community-based groups using government programs that cobbled it together. And so we provided a lot of a, assistance around that. We uh, did neighborhood plans uh, that looked at uh, various different areas of how you can revitalize those areas. We did them in Fort Greene. We did them <coughs> in Williamsburg and in East New York. Try to get daycare centers going. We tried to do a, which failed. We worked with uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard for a while on creating this network of uh, daycare centers that would be on routes that uh, the workers would go towards the Navy, you know, en route to the Navy Yard. Uh, and we created a proposal for uh, a daycare center with medical facilities and training facilities that would be located at the Navy Yard with hubs, uh, with, which would be the hub of a series of satellites in the surrounding area. Mm -hmm. So some ideas came to fruition, many of them did. We always say this after we play a clip. I love this clip, but I, I really, you know, so, I mean, it's clear that Ron is, a, is an urban planner because he really just walked us through the steps and the real steps and the work and some and some obstacles, right? Um, some. So, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of obstacles. Yeah, a lot of obstacles yeah. that people have to go through to make it possible to live in neighborhoods like Fort Greene and these brownstones. What makes Ron, I think, a brilliant leader is that he recognizes and acknowledges the skills and advantages that he brought to mm -hmm. the table as a first-time brownstone homeowner, even as he himself experienced incredible difficulty right. making it happen. Right. So he had the cushion of his family. He mm -hmm. said he borrowed his money from his father, his uncle, and his credit cards. Yes. And then he also needed to get additional money right. to help fix right. up the place. Right. Now, when it came to fixing up the place, he was an architect, right? right? He was right, a trained right, architect. Right. So he brought a set of skills that he very, I think, reflectively recognized that most people looking to do this right. might not nece necessarily have, you know? So I think that it, it shows the enormous... I mean, this was an enormous risk and responsibility yes, yes, who are yes. committing, people who are committing to this, on top of which I actually think what is really important about also what Ron says is that his goal was actually to facilitate low-income right, home right, ownership. Right, And so that, le even less of a safety net, makes yeah, this prospect all yeah. the more risky. Yeah, I really appreciate that he uh, acknowledges, even though he struggled, that he also enjoyed certain privileges that other people would not have, whether it was family support or the ability to secure credit. You know, we giggle at $40,000 yeah. for a brownstone, yeah. but $40,000 up front yeah. Uh, plus yeah. the money that takes yeah. to fix yeah. it in the 1960s yeah. was no, was a significant yeah. amount yeah. of money for anybody, right? I like that he talked about the importance of having rentals and that program that they were envisioning included going to local schools and institutions and, and getting them to guarantee that they would send their students or faculty there to rent uh, because this was a critical part of the puzzle. Yes. I mean, he really gives us all of the pieces of the puzzle. It's credit. It, it's access to capital. It is technical know-how and knowledge of how to like renovate your property. It is low interest loans. It is rental customers, right? Yeah. And to make this happen, 
it requires community participation. Yes. And I think this to me is, I think, the real crux of this of this clip. Today, I think we often think of home ownership as a financial investment. It is an, a, a focused individual or yes. family yes. experience. Yes. Um, it, it is very clear from Ron Schiffman's clip that home ownership is actually a community experience and one that is going to sink or swim based on your participation in com- in the community, right? So it was very clear that they they were going into places with few resources, right? And they needed to right. create those resources right. from the ground up. Right. And I I also loved when he said, you know, we threw a whole bunch of ideas out there. A few stuck, like right. a lot of them didn't, yes, right? Yes, I mean, there was yes. an probably enormous amount of n- ideas that they put this much energy into, only to have them fail, even where others actually did succeed. As always, there are always interesting programs happening here at Brooklyn Historical Society that we love to endorse and welcome you to check out. And for me, there is a program happening here at our 128 Pierpont Street location uh, called The Original Celebrity Chef, The King of Curry. And this will take place Thursday, August 10th at 7 p.m. It is going to feature a previous guest we've had on our Fat Push and Main podcast, Sarah Lohman. You should check out that December episode where we where we looked at food and identity in Brooklyn. Sarah Lohman will be joined with Vivek Bald from MIT, who has done a lot of research on South Asian history in New York City. And they will be looking at the life of the charismatic chef Jay Ranji Smile, who in 1899 introduced Indian cuisine to the well-to-do of New York, ushering curry into America's food lexicon. This is going to be a really fascinating program for people to learn about how and when Indian cuisine entered our culinary landscape. This is this is literally making me hungry. So. <laughs> <laughs> we should go grab some Indian food after this. I'm going to take us outside of the Brooklyn Historical Society building um, for my endorsement today because there's no better way to get to know New York's neighborhoods than on foot. And this is an amazing city for walking tour companies. And I just want to throw out an endorsement of two of my favorite companies. One is Big Onion Walking Tours. Full disclosure, I used to be a Big Onion Walking Tour Guide when I was getting my PhD. Okay, alumna. I know. Yeah, I'm a I'm an alum. And, you know, they happen to give a fantastic Fort Greene tour. So if you want to keep learning about Fort Greene and see it firsthand, go check them out at BigOnion.com. And the other is Turnstile Tours. And one of the things I love about Turnstile is they give these kind of pull back the curtain um, walking tours of places like the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Brooklyn Army Terminal. So you can check them out at Turnstile Tours. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on any podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are Julie Golia and Zahir Ali.